In this podcast, we're taking a dive into the lives of dangerous women of Queensland. And we're not talking about serial killers here. We're talking about strong, fascinating women who forged their way through life with boldness, daring and courage and challenged the status quo to inspire change in Queensland. Women I would like to be more like myself. Dangerous Women is a podcast by the State Library of Queensland, hosted by myself, Holly's Wolf, produced by Snuggletooth Productions and supported by the Queensland Library Foundation's crowd-giving fundraising campaign. Join us as we tell the stories of some of the greatest Queensland women you've never heard of. In our first episode, we donned our Cobras and headed out west to meet Keelan Mailman, Australia's first female Indigenous cattle station manager. Last week, we slipped into something a little more glamorous and hit the Gold Coast to learn about aerobatic pilot and fashion designer Ivy Hassard. For our third episode, we're going over the rainbow for a bit of LGBTQ Bris Vegas history. We're brushing the dust off lesbian legend Lillian Cooper, the first female doctor in Queensland, to discover what the history books haven't told us. Just by breathing, just from the way that she spoke, the way that she smoked, <laughs> the way that she walked, just by Walking into a room, Lillian would have upset the status quo. She was a, a very dangerous woman. We're talking to Katie Ford, a queer playwright who has done extensive research on Dr Lillian Cooper and who also conveniently happens to live down the road from me. <laughs> I'm so glad that we're getting to do this. All right, cool. Okay, let's do it. But first, let's look at what we already know. Lillian was an immigrant and didn't arrive in the Sunshine State until 1891. She was born and raised in the UK, where she first made waves as a teenager, enrolling herself in med school at the recently opened London School of Medicine for Women. This was not the done thing for ladies back then, and her parents and basically everyone else in the world were all highly unimpressed. But she did it. Lillian became a doctor, at a time when very, very few women were doing so. Now to what the history books don't tell us. Lillian got into med school with the help of a woman who she thought was a bit of all right. I really do think it's one of those um, cases where two people met each other and magic happened. And if they hadn't met each other, they would have led very frustrated lives. Lillian Cooper and Josephine Bedford were both from upper middle class families and weren't expected to get their hands dirty in life. Happily, Josephine came for a holiday to Lillian's town and the two young girls met. And I don't know exactly how old they would have been. I think they were about 14 or 15. Lillian confessed to Josephine that she wanted to be a doctor and she had no idea how to do that because, you know, there was just, there was no internet. There was no one you could call. In one of the papers at the time, there was a beauty columnist who gave advice to women about wrinkles and pimples and things like that. Kind of like Dolly Doctor. Josephine wrote in and said, oh, I'm having problems with freckles. What can I do? P.S. My friend wants to be a doctor. <laughs> and what can she do to, um, to, to, to become a doctor? In the newspaper, she published a response about how to get rid of freckles and also the address of the, the medical hospital that accepted women in London. So that's how they, they found out what they could do. It's so fabulously underground, isn't it? I can just imagine that columnist getting that letter and thinking, aha, 
Here's a way I can let young women know about this school that's just started up to teach medicine to women. So Lillian saved up her dress allowance, yes, she had one of those, and secretly paid for a tutor and got herself into med school. And when she moved to London to start her studies, who should go with her but Josephine? Oh, it's so coincidental that these two girls ended up in uni together. But no, Josephine had already had fights with her parents about um, wanting to go to London and go to university before she even met Lillian. And so when the two of them met, they were able to support each other to do this. Lil's story really can't be told without Jo, who features in every significant event in her life, from the moment when they first met as teenagers in the UK through to her death in Brisbane 60 years later. And yet, most historians have managed to overlook this major detail of Lillian's life somehow, naming Josephine simply as her companion, which is precisely why I've chosen to interview Katie on the subject, and not them. Katie has her gaydar firmly in place. The word companion, friend, lifelong friend. These words, used to describe Josephine in almost all the historical writing about the couple I've come across, give me a similar sinking feeling to the time my long-term girlfriend's mother described me as her daughter's special friend. But this is how Lil and Joe's love story began, with Joe kindly acting as poor old single Lillian's chaperone in the big smoke of London. Josephine studied painting and Lillian studied medicine. And I I assume that, that this is when they started to become connected to the, the suffragists and the suffragettes. So it would have been quite a heady experience for those two women, like these incredibly energetic women to move to London and then find all these other women just like them who wanted to break out and live their fullest lives. Yeah, that's pretty much my coming out story too. Went to uni, became an activist, suddenly realised that all of my new friends were lesbians and that I was one too. But it wasn't all gay fun and parties for Lillian Cooper. A woman in medicine was a very new idea back then and Lillian met with plenty of resistance. It was really extraordinarily hard Women had to put up with lecturers refusing to teach them. They often had to pay to have classes outside of the designated university times because lecturers would just not allow them to come into the room where there were male students. There were, you know, incidents where in an anatomy class the the female students turned up and women shouldn't be allowed to see dead, naked bodies. And so the male students um, refused to let them in and threw mud at them and rioted. Even today, there are more men than women in medicine in Australia, particularly in specialised fields. But, thanks to women like Lillian, there's at least less of the literal mudslinging. Not long after graduating, Lillian was offered an assistantship to a doctor in Brisbane. She accepted, and again with Josephine as her loyal companion, gee, what a good friend, the two of them travelled to Australia. Some accounts would have you believe that Lillian had been offered the assistantship as a drunken joke, women not generally being taken very seriously in the medical profession at the time, though others take a less cynical approach. So she was working in England and it sounds like she was working under pretty rough uh, circumstances. And the school that Lillian attended was called the London School of Medicine for Women. And her teacher there had been contacted by a doctor in Brisbane asking specifically for 
a female doctor to be sent out to Brisbane because Brisbane women wanted a female doctor. Brisbane seems to have been, in 1891, a really radical place of forward-thinking women who got together and wanted a female doctor. At the time, there was one female doctor in the whole of Australia and none in sunny Queensland. So Dr Garrett Anderson wrote to Lillian and said, oh, would you like to go out to Brisbane? And Josephine and Lillian decided to go, which it, it would have been like sailing off into the absolute unknown. It would have been the, mo- the bravest act to hop on that ship and head off to the other side of the world where they knew literally nobody. I can imagine they were absolutely terrified, but also thrilled at the prospect of adventure. Similar to how I felt when I first caught the train from the Gold Coast up to Brisbane for my first day of uni back in 1998. Brisbane was such a small town and such a wild town. It may have been a place where people felt that they could go and just be themselves. Brisbane definitely had that impact on me. My new best friend Cheryl met me at the station that day with a cask of goon and a great big pash, though I suspect Lillian and Josephine's reception may have been slightly more sedate. Their ship sailed into the harbour. They were met by a group of women. They were, you know, ushered back to their house with open arms and flowers and cups of tea and they were really welcomed. It's impossible for us to know how much was assumed and how much was politely overlooked when it came to Brisbane's reception of Lillian and Josephine, but it does seem as though they lived their lives together in a relatively open way. It's very, very hard to say how out Lillian and Josephine were in Brisbane, but there were a lot of lesbians involved in the suffragette movement and you could hazard a guess that they were all out to each other. I'm fascinated by this idea of the suffragette movement being a hotbed of lesbian activity. It reminds me so much of the wildness of my student activism days and I'm pleased to think that Lil and Joe might have been caught up in a similar heady time. There's diaries that have been published uh, probably within the last five or six years of um, of suffragettes and they were all bed hopping. <laughs> and when that book came out, I started to try and find connections between some of the women in the books and Lillian and Josephine, and they were connected to these women. I think there were m- much larger networks than um, we're, we're currently aware of. So what did Lillian and Josephine do once they'd arrived in Brisbane, other than drink tea with the ladies? Well, over the next 20 years, Lillian joined the Medical Society of Queensland and worked first at the Hospital for Sick Children and the Lady Lamington Hospital for Women, and later at the Martyr. It was hard at times, being the first female doctor in the state, and there's plenty of speculation that obstacles were constantly thrown in Lillian's way in an effort to dissuade her with continuing in the profession. I was looking at the transcripts from the Brisbane Medical Journals the Brisbane doctors would get together and look at strange cases or explore new ideas and Lillian would turn up to these uh, events. And I, I just I noticed that the first few times that she turned up, the topics that were on the menu seemed to be designed to humiliate her. Not that I think she would have been humiliated, but they would get men with enlarged testicles to come in. Which is pretty hilarious, really, because Lillian doesn't strike me as the kind of woman to be either shocked by or even particularly interested in a giant pair of balls. 
the female doctors were the ones who were given the the, the drunken, uh, violent, abusive patients. So they were given the really tricky uh, cases. And I think it may have been a systematic attempt to wear them down and to push them out without, you know, without saying in so many words, get out. However, Lillian didn't seem perturbed by any of this. One of the Brisbane doctors said to Lillian, what you need is a wedding ring. And Dr. Cooper replied, I'd wear it on my toe. So Lillian continued working and before long had people lining up round the block to see her. Josephine was also completely run off her feet. It's a well-known fact in queer circles that there's a direct correlation between lesbians, vegetarianism and social work degrees, and Jo was no exception. She worked extensively on animal rights and on social justice issues. They seem to be out every night of the week trying to better society. Josephine was involved in the rights of children. She could see that there were women going out to work and their children were just left to run wild on the streets and she wanted to do something to help these, these young mothers and so she, yeah, she set up the first uh, kindergarten. She was also instrumental in creating the first public park in Queensland, Bedford Park in Spring Hill. She set up a park with play equipment, which was a whole new idea as well, so these kids would have something to do while their mothers were at work. In their spare time, Little and Joe also taught the local ladies about their labias. <laughs> so Lillian and uh, Josephine would do information nights for women. And some of these nights were just about uh, how to dress for the weather. You know, it was at that time women wore a, a lot of clothing that was very restrictive and Lillian in particular thought that what women wore was ridiculous and she was trying to stop women wearing corsets and um, she was trying to teach them about hygiene and all that kind of stuff. She was so passionate on this topic that she wrote letters to the newspapers about it. Then look at the fashion of tight lacing. Is it graceful? Is it elegant? What more beautiful figure can you see than that of the Venus de Milo? Corsets in my opinion should not be worn. But I digress. Now back to the labias. There were also these other nights that they ran about women's sexual health. So you couldn't go if you were a virgin. You couldn't go if you were unmarried. You had to, you had to, you know, know what's what. What I thought was really cute was one of the articles that was talking about these nights said that Josephine had drawn pictures of female anatomy. <laughs> and I just love to think where she would have drawn those from. It gives me a different perspective of Lillian to imagine her with her legs up in the air. But most of all, it amazes me that with all of these goings on, most historians have still managed to erase Lillian's sexuality from her story. It wasn't completely written out of their history, I guess, because the fact that they're in the newspapers so often as a couple, so Lillian and Josephine did this, Lillian and Josephine did that, whether or not everyone accepted that they were a romantic couple or not, they were definitely accepted as a unit. This is true. There's actually some interesting clues that suggest the two were acknowledged, if not as lovers, then at least as an unequivocal duo. The couple attended plenty of social events and a list of the attendees was always reported in the social pages of the local paper because basically no one in Queensland had a life back then. When Lillian and Josephine arrived in Brisbane, they were immediately welcomed into the upper echelons of social life and in the first six months or so, Lillian and Josephine's names were listed separately. So Dr. Lillian Cooper would be listed with the, the C names and Josephine Bedford would be listed with the B names. 
whereas all the heterosexual couples would be listed as Dr. and Mrs. this, Dr. and Mrs. that. But then as time went on, Lillian and Josephine started being listed as a couple. So it would be Dr. and Mrs. Brown, Dr. and Mrs. Smith, Dr. Lillian Cooper and Miss Josephine Bedford. And when they turned up at parties, they turned up as a couple. So why the shift? Did Brisbane suddenly become super queer friendly? Or did their names just start to become synonymous with each other, to the point where it became automatic to group them as one, like Adam and Eve, Bonnie and Clyde, Cathy and Heathcliff, Bert and Ernie? I think that they got on the side of a journalist. Her name was Amy Coventry. She was attending a party at the old museum and a casement window fell out of the roof and broke her leg. And Dr Cooper was on the scene at the party and saved her leg. And it just seems to be from then on, this Miss Coventry went out of her way to follow Lillian and Josephine's every move, anything they did. Oh, they've gone to Redcliffe today. Let's put that in the paper. You know, like anything they did, it got in the paper. And um, I think she was instrumental in making them little mini celebrities in Brisbane. So Lillian and Josephine were minor celebrities in sleepy little Bris Vegas. And then World War One kicked off and everything changed. Soldier. You know what? Someone is going to try to take this hospital away. Of course they will. When that day comes, we fight. Along with her partner, Alethea Monsor, Katie's actually written a musical about this part of Lillian's life. It's called A Girl's Guide to World War, and I had the pleasure of seeing it in a little theatre in the Sunshine Coast hinterland late last year. It recently won two Matilda Awards, including the Lord Mayor's Award for Best New Australian Work. And there's talk of it being taken to QPAC in the big smoke of Brisbane next. We were walking down the street in George Street in Brisbane and we saw a plaque on, a, on the mansions that said that Queensland's first female doctor lived there. And that's all we knew when we started going down this rabbit hole. And then, you know, we discovered um, Josephine and just discovered this incredible life that they'd had together. And we were passionate about telling their story. But one of the hardest things to do was to work out what part of their lives to tell because you could literally take a slice out of any year of their life and tell that story. But in the end, we decided to tell one year when they went to the front line um, in Serbia during World War I. Lillian initially approached the Australian Army offering her help, but women like Lillian were generally told to stay home and knit. So unsurprisingly, she was turned down. Unperturbed, she stomped off to volunteer with the Scottish Women's Hospital Service instead which had been set up by, you guessed it, those feisty suffragettes. They created these hospitals from the ground up and they were so well financed. A lot of money rolled in from all over the world, uh, especially America. They had x-ray machines, they had blood labs, they had the ambulances, they designed their own uniforms, everything. They were really, really well equipped compared to the other hospitals on the front line. The musical focuses on when Lillian was based in France and Serbia, working as a surgeon in the first women-run hospital on the front line. It tells the story of a group of women who tried to sign up for service during World War I, and these were female doctors but also female drivers, female ambulance drivers, like women who could drive cars, which was, you know, pretty rare in those days, and women who just wanted to go to war and help and be orderlies and carry buckets and wash clothes or, you know, just women who wanted to go to war. And they were all told no because women weren't allowed to join the army. 
The hospital was run by an Australian doctor called Dr Agnes Bennett and Lillian became the lead surgeon. And, of course, Dr Lillian Cooper brought Josephine with her. Um, Josephine wasn't ever intended to be there, but Josephine just turned up with her because they did everything together. And Josephine is so freaking capable that um, she ended up becoming the head of the ambulance unit and running the ambulance arm of the hospital. The hospital was known for its compassionate care of both the injured soldiers and also of the injured horses that were being used on the front line. The method that they used to run this hospital was extremely different to all the other hospitals around them. So if you were a wounded soldier at that time, you could expect to be probably given some hay on the floor, um, some morphine to see you through while you bled out. Um, If you had a stomach wound, you weren't even treated. At the hospital where Dr Lillian worked, she got a reputation for actually saving people with abdominal wounds. Doctors from other hospitals would come and watch her work because she was just so incredible at what she did. Hygiene is a topic everyone is familiar with at the moment thanks to coronavirus and the new obsession of washing our hands. Lillian would approve. She was big on hygiene. In fact, hygiene was one of the most significant things that set the Scottish Women's Hospital apart from all the rest. It's something that the other hospitals just didn't seem to care about, where other hospitals had, you know, rats and open buckets and they would just leave the patients in their blood-sloped Um, uniforms from the field all covered in mud and blood and what would happen at um, Dr Cooper's hospital and Dr Bennett's hospital was as soon as the patients were brought in they were stripped clean they were put on a tarpaulin they were washed they were given fresh pajamas and they were put into a clean bed and it humanized the patients and um, it became such an important thing for the soldiers that um, soldiers from other hospitals would sneak out and bribe their way into Dr. Cooper and Dr. Bennett's hospital. There's lots of lovely diary entries where uh, if, the, if the soldiers start acting up or, you know, start becoming too flirty or whatever, Dr. Bennett would just say, I'll send you to another hospital and then go, oh, no, no, <laughs> we'll, we'll be good. Lillian and Josephine were both awarded the Order of St. Sava from the Serbian King for all their work. And you can see Lillian's medal on display today in St Mary's Church in Kangaroo Point. Speaking of, there's also a pair of stained glass windows in that church that Josephine dedicated to Lillian after she died. I turn up to St Mary's late one afternoon, hoping to get a glimpse of it myself. We're at St Mary's Anglican Church and next door is St Vincent's Hospital. That is the site of their home. And there's some um, interesting homosexual um, references in the stained glass window, so we're looking for that. Look for a gay window. The stained glass window is at St Mary's at Kangaroo Point, and it's from a passage in the Bible where a Roman soldier begs Jesus to save his, it could be slave, but it could also be read that it's the Roman soldier's partner. And it's one of those few passages in the Bible where you could read it in a, uh, in a queer way. Typical of my poor time management, we've arrived right on dusk. So the task proves to be trickier than I'd anticipated. There's this beautiful sunset glow over everything, which is gorgeous, but it's making finding the stained glass window a little bit tricky. This is not the one because this is a floral pattern. Let's keep moving. I don't know. Does anyone have a compass with them? Because I don't know which way is south. That's south. How do you know? She's right. My producer knows everything. Definitely putting that in. (laughs) 
In a lucky twist, in our next episode of this podcast, we're interviewing transgendered priest Joe Inkpen. Because we're such intersectional feminists here at Snuggletooth Productions, we took the opportunity to ask her if she can shed any more light on the biblical meaning of this story and why Josephine might have chosen this particular scene to dedicate to Lillian's memory. Lots of these stories in the Bible, we just don't see them properly. So, for instance, in the ancient world, relationships between men were very common. So when you see a story when a, a man comes who's obviously you know, a very powerful person, like a centurion or whatever, why is he coming? He is desperate because he must be prompted by profound Love, really. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense because he's just a slave otherwise. I mean, why would you go after a slave boy and, and humble yourself and lose all that face, which is so important in the ancient world? It is a loss of prestige and everything to go to this particular thing. You've got to be driven by something more than just, you know, I'm a good, caring master. Why have we confined our reading of the Bible just to, to one set of things well we've done it because we use the bible to justify our ends sort of thing you know so i don't want to use the bible to just justify my ends but i do want to break them open so that we've got more possibilities i suppose found the window the glass stained glass window if anyone is listening and is thinking of taking up stained glass windowing then i think you should pay a little bit more attention to the face because they're just circular blobs <laughs> It's quite thrilling standing on the same ground that these two bastions of Brisbane's queer history once stood on themselves. I picture Lillian frowning, feet firmly planted apart and hands on hips, and Josephine beside her, smiling sweetly to put the other parishioners at ease. This symbiotic relationship between the two women was something Katie really played on in the musical, and it's made me wonder whether perhaps Lil and Joe were an early representation of a butch femme couple. By the same token, though, like Josephine was very into cars. Uh, <laughs> so she, during the war, she ran the the ambulance arm of the hospital and she, Lillian had a bad accident when they lived in Brisbane. Uh, this is before the war. And Josephine took it uh, upon herself to um, drive Lillian around and um, kind of be her chauffeur. Uh, and she looked after the cars. And um, so, yeah, so she, she, was, she was butch in that way, I guess. Okay, so maybe they weren't quite the classic butch femme couple. Although, here's a fun little anecdotal story about Lillian's accident. Apparently, while she was recuperating in bed, they laid straw in the street in front of her home to deaden the noise of the traffic. Sounds kind of reasonable, except that her home was in the mansions on George Street, right in the thick of the CBD, down near the Botanical Gardens. You know what they say, butch on the streets, femme in the sheets. And it sounds like Lillian was a bit of a pussycat when she was tucked up in her sickbed. I like to think of this story as a bit of a metaphor for their relationship. Lillian so staunch and strong in the face of adversity, but completely useless without Josephine looking after her. If Josephine wasn't with her, she was grouchy, she was morose, she, she wouldn't talk. She just couldn't do anything without Josephine being there. For all Lillian's courage and determination, it sounds like she really wouldn't have achieved any of it without Josephine's support. How did Josephine help Dr Cooper navigate society? Because I think if Josephine hadn't been there, I don't know if Dr Cooper could have done um, what she did. I don't know if she would have been brave enough to sail off to Brisbane and set up a new life. It seems to be Josephine was really at the helm of that. 
These days, however, we'd probably tease those two for being codependent. Josephine seems to um, be universally loved. She was so kind and so gentle and always looking out for everybody else. She was like a little beacon of light. And I think without her, I don't know if Lillian would have been as accepted as she was because she does sound like she was very hard work. (laughs) She would swear and she would smoke and she didn't seem to give a crap about what anybody thought. You know, she would sit with the legs apart and she she wasn't like what women were supposed to be like at all. Um, And then you've got, you know, love lovely, demure, kind, gentle, sweetly spoken Josephine and somehow that made it okay. Like, I don't know, people seem to be like, all right, you know, we'll take we'll take Dr Cooper because she's got Josephine with her. Dr Bennett, who worked with Dr Cooper on the front line, wrote about her first impressions of the couple in a letter home. Dr Cooper and Miss Bedford from Queensland just arrived in time. Dr Cooper is a bit of a grasser really, but Miss Bedford really is a perfect dear. One of these extraordinarily unselfish people whose unselfishness is not just a negativeness, but a real intelligent effort to make others happy and comfortable. I had to Google what exactly Grouser means. Apparently, Lillian was a bit of a grump. Dr Bennett later elaborates on Lillian's character further. I am really quite envious of their friendship, but really Dr Cooper is like a bear with a sore head all the time Miss Bedford is away. What a gourmand for work Dr Cooper is. She gets perfectly miserable and makes everyone else so when there is no work for a day. Dr Cooper is so fearfully indiscreet in many of her public remarks. It does not do among these inexperienced girls. They pay too much attention to such. My favourite description of Lillian, however, is from the ANU Biography website, where she's described as a tall, angular, brusque, energetic woman prone to bad language. If she did not have work, she was hell on wheels. She was so angry. And there's there's really funny incidences of, you know, snowstorms and tents falling over and, uh, and surgery having to be done under these really extreme circumstances. And there's one where she was super sick. She had bronchitis. The tents were falling over because of snowstorms. You know, they had people bleeding out on the table. And this was when Lillian was just like, oh, bring it on, I love it, bring it, I love this, this is, this is what I live for. Considering she thrived on action and adversity, it's nearly impossible to imagine Lillian being forced into a dull life of marriage and domesticity, as most women were in her day. I feel a huge sense of relief that she managed to escape that particular social convention. There were also plenty of other conventions that she flaunted, particularly those regarding femininity. Many of her peers in Brisbane said that she looked like a man and she walked like a man and there was yeah, lots of comments like that about her being uh, very masculine. There's a photo of Lillian from a newspaper that I really love where she's dressed in men's clothes and a hat and the only way you can tell she's actually a woman is from her name. It's impossible to put modern labels onto people from the past because identities are relative to their eras. However, it's indisputable that Lillian was, if not butch or perhaps even possibly trans, then at least very comfortably masculine of centre. In a speech Josephine made following her death, she speaks publicly about this. Josephine says that um, 
you know, some of Lillian's sisters got married. Some of them um, decided to just stay home and look after their dogs <laughs> uh, and never got married. She says um, her three brothers were all clever men. And then she says Dr. Cooper had much more of her brothers in her than she had of her sisters. In Radcliffe Hall's famous lesbian novel, The Well of Loneliness, which is from the same area as Lil and Joe, there's plenty of references to women coming back after the war to breed dogs, which seems to be a coded way to say that they were childless lesbians. And so I can't help but wonder if this is Josephine's secret way of saying that Lillian's sisters are all raging bulldikes too. But of course, this is all speculation. Yeah, it's kind of that, you know, that quintessential picture of the butch English woman, you know, walking across the countryside with her with her red setters, you know. <laughs> so maybe, I don't know if that's another little dog whistle that she's got in the speech there. As well as being a trailblazer in medicine, Lillian was also one of the first female drivers in Queensland and was one of 18 foundation members of the Automobile Club, which we now know as the RACQ, and who I call whenever I'm stranded with a flat tyre in the rain. Lillian would probably have not approved of me doing this. She was apparently, I quote, often heard cursing and swearing at an obstinate engine, but is always described as being fiercely independent, accepting help from no one. She was also a bit of a speed demon and got hit with several speeding fines over the years, including a three-pound fine for racing a work colleague down Queen Street at over twice the legal speed limit. Dr. Cooper was a really bad driver, really horrendous driver. She was constantly getting tickets and she was speeding and there's little bits and pieces in the in the English newspapers of uh, uh, Dr. Lillian Cooper turning up in court because she just kept getting into trouble for her bad driving. Lillian retired in 1941 and died in 1947. When Josephine died several years later, she left their house in a stunning location on the Kangaroo Point Cliffs to the Sisters of Charity, with the proviso that it be used to provide health services to those with low incomes. It's now the site of St Vincent's Hospital, formerly Mount Olivet, and there's even a cafe there called Lillian's. And in one sense, that's the end of the story. A remarkable woman who was a trailblazer for women in medicine and who challenged the status quo. But for me, the story reaches far further than this. There are so few LGBTQ role models in history, because history has famously silenced anything but heterosexuality from the records. This is why Lillian's story is so important to be told. It's essential to counteract the gaping silences in the books and resources written about her, to talk about what so many others somehow missed, or perhaps even insisted on missing. When we were talking earlier, you said to me, oh, were you the first one to realise that Lillian and Josephine were probably a couple? And it kind of stumped me for a minute because to me it's so obvious that they were a couple. I just thought naturally everyone would think that these, these two were a couple. If it was a man and a woman, you wouldn't even question it. We're never, ever going to get a photo of them in bed together, you know, but we can see that they were everything to each other. During her research, Katie even approached one of Lillian's biographers with the proposal that Josephine was not her companion, but rather her life partner. But this was not well received. We, uh, 
you know, we're talking about Lillian and Josephine being a couple and she got so angry and she she said that they absolutely were not and she has female friends and are we suggesting that she's romantically involved with her female friends and she goes on cruises with them and there's, you know, they're not romantically involved and all this kind of stuff. And um, I said, yeah, but you're, you're not going to be buried in the same grave as, as, your, as your female friends. Like you, you're not living with them for 50 odd years. And um, uh, she, yeah, she absolutely, she would not come to the table on that at all. She was um, so angry that we would even suggest it. When I think back to high school, I remember with Rage the Drama Classes, where we studied Tennessee Williams' A Glass Menagerie for an entire term without the drama teacher even once mentioning that Tennessee was gay and that Tom, the character I was so drawn to, was a raging homo. I had no role models back then and it had a definite negative impact on me. I really don't think Lillian would mind us talking so freely about her now because from what I can tell, Lillian didn't seem too bothered about hiding it herself. She's buried in the same grave as Josephine, for God's sake. Speaking of graves, there's more secret coding about their relationship to be found there. On Josephine's grave, it reads, For you, Lord, love all things that are, and abhor nothing which you have made. For they are yours, O Lord, you lover of souls. So for her to choose that quote, which is saying that, you know, God does not create anything that he hates, God loves all things that are. And Josephine was a very religious person. And I think she found a way to uh, keep her faith and to be a queer uh, woman. And that that wasn't at, at odds to her. She could be both. And for her to find that quote and to put that on her grave, I think is um, it, it does say a lot. The couple's grave was the final destination on a queer history bus tour called Priscilla Gets Historical which was held about 10 years ago in Brisbane. We've tracked down Gay Lemon, and yes, that is her real name, who was one of the two tour guides. People were genuinely fascinated to be finding out about their history. There's so much history in Brisbane in a very short space, and the energy on the bus was magnificent. There'd be lots of laughter, lots of fun, people sharing their stories of their times back when they were going to the clubs, often in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Really big age range of people on the bus as well. A lot of our seniors would come, but also younger people who didn't have any understanding or knowledge of the massive history that resides in Brisbane. So it was wonderful. Gay is a self-professed professional lesbian and a celebrant with a passion for history. She also lectures about sex, and in between stops on the tour, she handed out black and white pictures of vulvas and penises for everyone to colour in, to skill them up about their bits. Lillian would have been proud. It was a wonderful opportunity for people to share their stories and be amongst people to learn about our history. It's so rich. And it's not something that we have access to. And queer history in particular, unless you go searching for it, it can be very invisible. We need to capture those stories and know that this is our reality, that this is our history. These are our, our, our wayfarers, our, our story keepers. 
And unless we make them real and present here and now, we're going to lose so much of who we were. And we need to know where we came from to be able to fully progress into a future. I think it's so important to have that anchor in the past but with our eyes facing forward and looking towards a, a better future because we can't ever go back. The tour culminated in a glitter-scattering ceremony at Lillian and Josephine's grave before dropping everyone off at Sporties, a gay bar that's been around long enough to practically classify as historical itself. On the last part of the tour that we did, Priscilla Gets Historical, we always ended up at Lillian and Joe's grave. And to pay homage to these two amazing women and the work that they did in their lifetime and also the fact that they were buried together, which was terribly risky back in the day, we would place our necklaces around the cross. These were necklaces that we gave each of the tour participants so that we'd know who they were. And then we would also empty the little bags of glitter that we had, which we were using to regay the places and bring back the gayness that was necessary. So we left a little bit of shine up in Tuong Cemetery with Lil and Joe. The tour was associated with a Museum of Brisbane exhibition called Prejudice and Pride, curated by Carol Lowe. The exhibition included an historical panel about Lillian and Josephine's life, as well as a panel about Robert Herbert, the first Premier of Queensland, and John Bramston, his companion, there's that word again, who was Queensland's first Attorney General. The pair established a property that they named Hurston, using a combination of their last names, and which is a suburb of Brisbane today. Parts of the exhibition are now archived in the John Oxley Collection, and there's also a write-up on the State Library website describing the catering at the exhibition, which included fairy cakes, lemon tarts, and my favourite, golden gay times. I always love a good menu. I've decided to visit the grave myself, to pay my respects to these incredible women who went before me and who helped pave the way for my own coming out in Brisbane many decades later. So we've just arrived at Tawong Cemetery and it's pitch black, um, which is a little bit spooky. And unfortunately, it seems that the gates are about to close. By the light of my iPhone, I find the map of the cemetery drawn up on a board and I locate Lillian's plot. Now, from what I can understand, Lillian's plot is in section 869, which is up oh, right near the top, which is quite a long way from where we are. Ah, oh, Dr. Lillian Cooper Drive. There's a street named after her in the cemetery. I'm just wondering whether we've got a big enough budget to pay the after hours release if we got lo- get locked in here. Being dangerous women ourselves, we decide to take the risk. This is possibly one of the madder things I've done with my producer, Erin. Um, we've just left her car parked at the entrance to the graveyard with a note on the windscreen saying, um, please don't lock us in. We've just gone to see Dr. Lillian Cooper's grave. As though that will somehow absolve us. We drive deeper and deeper into the cemetery until all we can see are shadowy stone angels and the occasional eerie electric flickering candle. Gay has warned me about coming to this particular cemetery late at night. Oh, and I'm serious about this. Never go there on a full moon. There, there is a lot of, uh, how shall we say, nefarious practices that have been known to occur in Tuong Cemetery. But hey, the things you do for art and the things you do for people like Lillian. 
We find the right section and then both of us head out in opposite directions with our iPhone torches, trying to find their gravestones. <laughs> I found it in the dark and it was the, the glinting of the beads on the gravestone that, um, that alerted me to it and I've brought my own beads with me and these beads are very special, I'm going to lay them on the grave. Um, these beads were my, my very good friend who's a beautiful gay man and is the, the donor uncle for my child. Um, he brought these back for me from New Orleans and so I'm going to lay them on Lillian's grave. Here it says, sacred to the memory of Lillian Violet Cooper, God is love. And underneath, and to Mary Josephine Bedford, lifelong friend, i.e. lifelong lover and soulmate of the above, died 22nd of December 1955. That, you know, that wasn't that long ago, really. They are thine, O Lord, thou lover of souls. And here we are on their grave. They're both buried here together, which is a, a pretty amazing and beautiful and radical thing. My producer's looking around worriedly. <laughs> um, the torchlight is glinting off all the gravestones around here, and it's a little bit spooky. <laughs> and I'm hoping that we make it back to her car and that it's still there and we haven't been locked in. <laughs> in my panic to get out as fast as possible, I go down a couple of one-way streets as I weave the car through the graveyard, trying to find my way back to the entrance. I'm terrified the gates will be locked and we'll be stuck in there all night. The gates are open! The car's still there! Hurrah! <laughs> we did it! We are dangerous women! <laughs> the problem with queer history is that there isn't any. It's all hidden in the subtext in stained glass windows or buried between the lines on stern grey gravestones. And so we have to look back through rainbow-tinted glasses and reinterpret the facts and clues in order to find the gays, the lesbians, the trans people and queers hidden within the sepia-stained pages of history. Lillian was a dangerous woman for her medical achievements, but also for the way she expressed and experimented with her gender. And of course, for her dedicated, lifelong relationship with her equally dangerous partner, Josephine. It's important that we acknowledge this and not overlook it. Too often, queers are erased from history, as though we're some kind of recent phenomena, as though we didn't used to exist. And we all know for a fact that that isn't true. The State Library of Queensland would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands this series was recorded and produced on, including the nations of Yugara, Turrbal, Yugambeh, Jinnabara, Bidjara, Yudinji, Irakunji, and the Godigal. This episode was recorded and produced by Erin McBean, sound designed by Patty Priest, and mixed by Simon Berkelman. Additional characters in this episode were voiced by Alethea Monsour and Susie French. Music from the musical A Girl's Guide to World War was provided by Alethea Monsour and Katie Ford.